News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I know we're all talking about provincial politics these days, but there's a lot going on on the federal front as well. In fact, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will outline the direction of his government when the throne speech is delivered this week. That week, That's going to happen on Wednesday. Now, Global News commissioned a poll with Ipsos Public Affairs to try to gauge what Canadians want the federal government to prioritize as we move into the fall and winter. So let's talk about those results now with the help of Sean Simpson, who is the Ipsos Vice President. Sean, thanks for being here. Good morning. So what do Canadians want to see on Wednesday? Well, we gave Canadians uh, a list of 12 possible priorities for the uh, throne speech, and we said pick two, the the two that you think that the Prime Minister and his government should be focused on. Number one is is perhaps obvious. It's immediate health measures to help fight the pandemic. Uh, And number two is getting Canadians back to work. Uh, Nothing else really came close. Uh, So, you know, about a month ago when the Prime Minister prorogued Parliament Uh, I think he did so with an idea that he was going to come back with some big and bold and innovative plans, you know, about the the future of Canada and our social programs, etc. But what Canadians are saying now, I think, given the recent uh, uptick in COVID-19 cases, is we need to focus on the here and now, the bread and butter issues, and let's focus on uh, stopping this pandemic and getting Canadians back to work. Now, in what ways would they like to see that? Do they want financial help? Do they want more programs? What would they like? Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a mix. Uh, so uh, we know from our polling that uh, Canadians believe that the government has not spent enough money on uh, on help for small businesses. You know, we did a good job with the CEWS keeping you know larger employers uh, uh, operating. We did a good job uh, with the CERB uh, with with uh, individual level supports for people who lost their jobs suddenly as a result of COVID nineteen. But you know, we keep hearing about restaurants and the mom and pop shops and the and the small one-off retailers who are really uh, struggling to survive. Uh, and so when we ask Canadians like about bigger picture things like massive infrastructure spending, you know, they weren't really supportive of it because they realized that, uh, you know, we may not have the money available to us anymore to fund those things. But more targeted supports to small businesses, uh, I think uh, Canadians um, see as a, as a really good way of getting people back to work and making sure that those businesses stay open. And do they have thoughts on, like, concerns about the money that the government is spending as well? Yeah, they do. Third on our list of priorities is, is a plan to reduce the deficit. Uh, back in uh, in March and April, when uh, the government announced the, the CERB and other supports that were available, we also asked Canadians whether or not they supported the, the, the deficit, uh, and uh, uh, three-quarters of Canadians did. In fact, they were willing to give uh, the Prime Minister essentially an uh, authorization to write a blank check to spend the money that he needed to spend. We've seen now over the course of the summer and now into the fall that support for these levels of of, of deficits um, is uh, is declining, and so there's a significant chunk of the population uh, that wants to see uh, a focus on bringing this down down in, in, into line. And you know, not we can't get rid of 350 billion dollar deficit overnight, but at least having a plan to reduce the budget deficit. And for those people who are planning on voting conservative in the next election, that's actually the second most uh, important issue on their agenda. Interesting. So there was a little change in priority depending on what their party affiliation was? Yeah, definitely. So liberal voters are are, uh, prioritizing uh, the same first two uh, uh, measures to fight the pandemic and getting Canadians back to work. 
Uh, they want to see more relief for people who have lost their jobs, so perhaps an extension or, or um, uh, otherwise at the CERB. Uh, but the fourth thing on their list, which is interesting, is a universal basic income. You know, the CERB has a bit of a de facto experiment uh, on, uh, yeah. you know, what happens when the government just kind of sends money to people uh, without really asking too many questions. And uh, uh, 18% of, of Liberal voters believe that that should be you know, one of the top two priorities uh, for the throne speech. NDP voters uh, actually can get get on that, uh, behind that as well, uh, rising to the second most important issue for NDP voters at 26%. Okay, but clearly it sounds like no matter which party, they really want the government to spend some more money to support Canadians. Yeah, that's right. We, we need to fight the pandemic. So, the, you know, the money needs to be spent to do that and to get through this crisis, uh, I think, is going to be supported by people. So long as they can see the tangible benefit of it now and we're not spending money, you know, on some big grandiose plans that would materialize five or ten years from now. All right. Makes sense. Sean, thank you. My pleasure. That is Sean Simpson, the Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. So they have done a poll commissioned by Global News to try to figure out what it is that Canadians want the federal government to prioritize as we move into the fall and winter, especially still dealing with the pandemic. We've got the throne speech coming from the Prime Minister on Wednesday. And as you heard Sean point out, the Canadians' top priorities are immediate health measures to fight the pandemic. That was number one, 33%. And getting Canadians back to work was number two at 26 And those were the two biggest issues Canadians say the government should be faced with right now. What I say will either stoke or dampen speculation, but I I just, uh, I've answered this question many, many times. Uh, We've always been ready for an election campaign, uh, and I'm going to just keep working until uh, uh, that time arrives. All right, so that was Premier John Horgan once again being asked about the potential for an election call. And not everybody thinks this is a great time to do that. We should mention, though, it hasn't stopped the parade of cabinet ministers saying that they're not going to run again. The latest one over the weekend is Transportation Minister Claire Turvena. She says she is retiring. She's been an MLA since 2005, and so she just made that public in the last couple of days. And so she joins, what, half a dozen other cabinet ministers and NDP MLAs who say they won't be running in an election that has yet to be called. And our next guest thinks, you know what, shouldn't be calling it anyway. Alex Schiff is a senior consultant at the public strategy and communications firm Navigator Limited. And he's written a piece about why this whole fall election should be avoided. Alex, thanks for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Why did you write this piece? I wrote this piece because I think it's clear in recent weeks that BC is in a much more precarious situation than we were earlier in the summer. You know, we've seen active case counts spike Last week alone, we hit multiple new records for new daily cases. And as we enter the fall, when epidemiologists predict the pandemic will likely worsen, I really think it's important that the public, as well as our government, focus on the crisis at hand, focus on containing the coronavirus pandemic. Okay. Do you, what about the argument? And I'm just going to play devil's advocate here because I Absolutely. actually don't. I don't think there should be a fall election either. But what about the argument that you know six months from now, a year from now, the economic state could be even more precarious? And if you're a political party at that point, you're looking at a really tough slog. Yeah, you know that's that's. I think that's a fair point. But it's it's clear that right now an election isn't necessary. Um, where will we be in six months or a year? Um, obviously, that uh, that is uncertain, but I think there's a strong point to make that uh, likely things will improve um, over the next six years, uh, six months to a year. And uh, an election right now simply isn't necessary. 
What do you about the public's perception of this? I think they're probably going to gamble that all oh, people will get over it in a couple of days. Do you think they would? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, I think a lot of folks right now really haven't been paying attention um, to this early election speculation. Folks right now are really concerned about their kids going back to school. Um, they're concerned about potentially getting the coronavirus, and they're really worried about um, the economic realities um, that, that are hitting our province right now. So I think um, once voters turn their minds uh, to the election, um, I think they're going to be a little bit ticked off that they're that they're going to have to go vote um, when it really isn't necessary. We've seen an enduring uh, minority government here in BC that has worked well together. The Greens have said that they're more than willing to continue cooperating with the NDP and passing legislation, and an election just really isn't necessary. And what what how's, how's your business been impacted by all of this, Alice? Like, what do you see out there happening in the industry? Sure. I mean, what I'm hearing from business owners really across Canada, but particularly in BC, is a lot of concern. Um, we have a worsening economic situation. There's signs that point to uh, aid from Ottawa that will be certainly slowing down as the months wear on. And I really think that business owners feel like they want their provincial government focused on helping them, not on hitting the campaign trail and uh, needing to uh, win over votes. Right. But this is BC politics we're talking about. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, I think, uh, you know, you make a really good point there where, Anything can happen. There's still the opportunity for Premier Horgan to uh, change his mind and and hopefully get back to having the government focus exclusively on the coronavirus and not having uh, MLAs and ministers at the campaign trail. Right. It sure sounds like it and looks like it. So clearly you wrote this because you feel like all the indications are there that this is coming. Yeah, I mean, as you as you rightly noted, I think we had uh, 60 uh, press releases come out from the government over the weekend, which is uh, very strange, not normal. Uh, many on Sunday alone, with yeah. some of them being rather significant policy announcements. Um, we saw we now have seven ministers that have said they're not running again. So really, every indication is that this is a government that's getting ready to uh, trigger an election. And your advice to them would be if they hired you, don't do it. Yes, that, that, that would be my advice. I think, uh, you know, I think Premier John Horgan is at his best um, when he is uh, a straight shooter, when he kind of stays above the political fray. Um, it is what led many non-traditional NDP voters to vote for him in the past. And I think playing politics at this time, um, when really we're at a critical inflection point dealing with the coronavirus pandemic is, is really just not advisable. All right, Alex, thanks for your take on this. Thanks so much, Timmy. Appreciate it. That's Alex Schiff, Senior Consultant at Navigator Limited. That's a public strategy and communications firm. Some sad news over the weekend. We heard that Canada's 17th Prime Minister, that would be John Turner, had passed away. He was 91 years old. Now, Global News reporter Ross Lord has done a wonderful job of looking back on some of the highlights of Turner's life and career. He was the golden boy of Canadian politics, a brilliant scholar, a superb athlete, fluently bilingual and good-looking. When he entered politics in 1962, the future looked bright for John Turner. Lester Pearson made him a cabinet minister, and in 1968, just six years after entering politics, a young Turner ran for the Liberal leadership. But he came up short, defeated by an even more charismatic politician, Pierre Trudeau. Turner served as justice and finance minister under Trudeau, but in 1975, he shocked Canadians by resigning. Amidst rumors, he got tired of butting heads with Trudeau. Turner retreated to life as a corporate lawyer, but he did not abandon his political ambitions. The two leaders. In 1984, Pierre Trudeau quit 
and Turner assumed the role of prodigal son, returning to assume the leadership of the Liberal Party. 1,862. At the convention, Turner beat Jean Chrétien, was sworn in as Prime Minister, and almost immediately called an election. Those facts are not correct. That campaign saw Turner on the receiving end of one of the most definitive knockout punches of Canadian politics. Before resigning, Pierre Trudeau made 200 patronage appointments, and Turner had to defend them when he debated Conservative leader Brian Mulroney. You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. The Liberals were bulldozed in the 84 election, winning just 40 seats. But Turner held on, holding fast in the face of backroom grumbling and Liberal infighting. In the 1988 election, he thought he'd found the issue that would propel him back to power. Free trade. Turner arguing powerfully it was a deal that would destroy Canada. I to believe that you've sold us out. Turner's stronger performance did win the Liberals more seats, but they still came a distant second to Brian Mulroney's Conservatives. It's uh, my intention to resign as leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. Soon after, Turner resigned as Liberal leader, staying on as an MP until 1993. The golden boy, having tasted as much defeat as victory in his political career. It's Global's Ross Lord there. Let's talk more about John Turner's career and his history. Uh, joining us now is our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. John Turner had, as you mentioned prior to, to playing that wonderful piece by Ross Lord, a deep connection here to yeah. the West Coast. I, I didn't realize this until I started reading more up on his life this past weekend. I remember this vividly because I was, you know, like in the, in the early 80s, so I would have been 10, 11 years old. And I remember that there was a lot of talk back then because John Turner was the first prime minister who had deep connections to us here in BC, which was not something that happened very often, right? So he actually ran, and when he was um, that brief prime minister time there, his riding was Vancouver Quadra. And so mm-hmm. that was a, a very important thing back then is that, wow, look at us. We actually have representation in Ottawa. Exactly. And then even after he once again lost as as liberal leader, he held on to that Vancouver Quadra seat until 1993 or just before that 1993 election. And that's when he ended up uh, giving it up. But, you know, many people may not know that he was a star athlete at the University of British Columbia. Really interesting fact about John Turner. He once held the Canadian record for the 100 meter dash and he even qualified for the 1948 Olympics while he was a student at UBC. Isn't that amazing? And he worked on the it UBC, a, the, yeah. the student paper up there as well. Fascinating. I mean, this, this a guy who was obviously a great athlete and a great mind as well. Now, I should mention he didn't actually end up going to the Olympics because he was injured, but I guess, you know, he ended up writing for the UBC, the paper instead. Uh, his mother, though, something else people might not know, also had a connection to British Columbia, and she too was this incredibly fascinating woman. So she was Canadian, but his father was British and and he was born in in England as a result. So his father was a British journalist, but his mother was this woman named Phyllis Ross. And she was actually the first female chancellor of UBC, highly intelligent woman. She received a bachelor's degree in economics and political science with first class honors from the University of British Columbia. 
1925. So as a widow, she moves back to Canada from England with her two children. She's a single mom, and she served at the Canadian Tariff Board, the Dominion Trade and Industry Commission, and the Wartime Prices and Trade Board. And then she eventually attained the most senior position that a woman could hold at the time in the Canadian Civil Service. Even more interesting... She actually dated R.B. Bennett, who, of course, was Canada's 11th prime minister really? for a short period of time. Yes, yeah, I mean, she stayed single in the end, but they did date for a period of time. Fascinating lives, right? There's so much about Canadian history that we don't learn until somebody like John Turner has passed away. And then we hear all mm-hmm. these stories and go, I did not know any, any of that. Yeah, and of course, when, when someone like John Turner does pass away, you know, you start looking more into his life and it kind of leads to these other connections through Canadian history that you start to explore as well. I mean, you know, we look at the fact that, for example, Turner was the second shortest serving prime minister in Canadian history, which, of course, then leads us to ask, okay, well, who was the yeah. shortest leading or serving prime minister? And that was Canada's sixth prime minister, Sir Charles Tupper. He served for just 69 days. Ooh. Yeah. So by about 10 days there. Yeah. I know there was a lot of debate about this because a newspaper over the weekend, the headline on John Turner's passing was, you know, man who served as prime minister for 11 weeks or whatever it was had passed away. Mm -hmm. And people were rightfully quite angry about that, saying there was so much more to this man, like a life of public service. And that's what you reduced him to. Yeah, I think that really does minimize his accomplishments. Absolutely. I mean, here we've just talked about how this was a man who even qualified for the Olympics at one point in his life. That's a pretty incredible feat in itself. He was a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, this is a man who was obviously oh. very intelligent as well. He served in Pierre Elliott Trudeau's government and held many positions that were important, especially through, uh, he was yeah. Minister of Justice during the October crisis of 1970. So this is a man who was in politics for a long time. He w- worked as a lawyer for a long time and played a big role in Canadian history and in Canadian politics. Certainly did. Nikki, thank you for the look back. Thanks, Amy. Hey, it was a big night for Canadian entertainment last night at the virtual Emmy Awards. So Global News Entertainment journalist Chris Chancelowitz is here to break down the big winners. And of course, we've got to talk about Schitt's Creek. Good morning, Chris. What's Schitt's Creek? Yeah, exactly. Nobody's saying that this morning. (laughs) Never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people have certainly heard of it now because that show had an amazing night last night. Yeah, I'd never seen uh, anything like that. Again, I, you know, I've been covering Emmys for at least 10 years now, and I've never seen that, uh, nor have I ever uh, heard Canada be referenced so many times, um, and not in a, you know, necessarily insulting way. It's nice to hear positive things. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> normally, you know, we're the butt of jokes, right? Normally, at this kind of thing, it's like, oh, the Canadians, you know. But then in this case, you know, uh, there was a lot of love online and social media. You know, everyone was just all over it. Um, and it was a really nice thing to see. What I thought was entertaining as well, in one of the several awards that Dan Levy was accepting, and he just kind of got political, and then he immediately apologized for it. That that was a very uh, Canadian moment. It was probably the most Canadian moment of the night, for sure, apologizing for winning. He said something like, the internet's going to hate me now, because it was literally the first hour of the show, nothing else got an award. Nothing. So, over an hour. It was. I think I remember looking at the clock, it was 9.07 Eastern. Um, and it was done, it was still just yeah. only Schitt's Creek that had won. And why, do you th- why do you think that is, Chris? What was it about this show, do you think, that just appealed to clearly Emmy voters at this time? Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors um, that you really have to look at. Um, one is, of course, the show's winning nature. Um, it's just, it's an underdog show. It's, 
you know, about fish out of water. Everyone loves that kind of story and gravitates to that kind of story. Um, you know, it's great actors, funny actors, uh, classic Canadian comedy, you know, that, that biting, wry, sarcastic humor that, you know, only we can create. I might be biased, but, you know, I think that's part of it. Uh, and then, of course, the whole move to Netflix. Um, of course, it aired on CBC in Canada uh, preliminarily. And then, you know, it was, it was pretty popular then, but it really got the boost once it went south of the border, which we've heard a million times. Um, so it goes south of the border. It's on Netflix. And then, you know, a lot of people are at home during COVID. Um, so really, it was just a perfect storm for um, people to really watch and, and binge and get addicted to Schitt's yeah. Creek. Were there yeah. any other, other than Schitt's Creek, any other surprises there from last night's show? I thought it was kind of, the whole thing was kind of mad. I didn't like the canned applause that they had. Uh, I thought they tried a little too hard to make it like a regular Emmys award. You know, and, you know, these awards are usually pretty painful. Um, just speaking from experience, having to cover them constantly, there's always an awkwardness. Um, it's very weird. But I found that, I agree with you, I think that um, it was a little forced. Um, what else could they really do? Um, the wall of TVs was weird. All of it was very bizarre. The segments felt, you know, <laughs> painful to watch again. Um, so, yeah, uh, th- there's no laughter at a lot of parts, which felt yeah. empty. I know there's nothing they can do about it. Um, I think they did the best they could, but it, it was definitely uh, a weird sort of ceremony for sure. I, I loved seeing Succession win because I love that show. Love, love, love it. Uh, yes, any yes. other big surprise? Were you surprised by Zendaya winning? Uh, you know what? I predicted that because I felt like of her in her category, I felt like she was the most standout, the most, um, you know, talked about this year. Everyone talked about Euphoria. Everyone uh, talked about Zendaya's performance. So I thought, you know what? It's and it's and it's kind of um, gimmicky enough in that she's 24 and the youngest person to ever ever win that award. Um, you know, it kind of had that factor going forward as well. So I thought, you know what, she's going to take it. So no, I wasn't surprised by that. What was interesting was the last several years at the Emmys has been a marvelous Mrs. Maisel party. Like, literally, they've won yeah. every single award. And then last night, they didn't win any, which was a huge departure, because normally they win everything, including Best Comedy. Uh, and then this year, nothing. So that was kind of shocking to me. It also, Insecure not away. winning. Pardon me? I said it giveth and taketh away. That's the way the Emmys yeah, go, sure right? Does. Anyway, it Chris, sure does. It's very fickle. <laughs> thanks so much for your time on that this morning. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. That is Chris Jensello. It's his global news entertainment journalist talking about last night's Emmys. Listen, if you don't watch Succession, I highly recommend it. It is a great show. Unfortunately for tourism, it is going to be a long recovery uh, because as we know, when it comes to international tourism, which brings in most of our visitors, a large portion in in British Columbia, um, it's going to be a while before borders are opened up. That is Finance Minister Carol James. She was speaking with the news team at Radio NL in Kamloops, talking about tourism. It is one sector, she said, that just won't be able to return to any kind of a normal until the border fully reopens. Now, we know that Premier John Horgan introduced the pandemic recovery plan late last week. Let's talk about the impact of it on the tourism sector now. Joining us is Walt Judas, CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Walt, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Now, you've obviously read things over. You've checked out the plan. Is there enough in there for the industry? Well, the way we've suggested um, this support is it's a good start. There is not enough uh, for the long term, but certainly for the short term, it will help a lot of small businesses, particularly access to the business recovery grant, which is part of what we've been asking for. So tourism businesses have a $10,000 top-up in addition to the core funding of ten to $30,000. So that's a good start. 
But as far as the medium to long term is concerned, we do think that there is more that's needed, particularly for many of the larger operators who have been sidelined for much of the year and do require the funds to to hire hundreds of people back into the workforce once travel picks up again, once the borders are open, and once we start to see some normalcy to tourism once again. And what, what kind of support are we talking about here? What would work best, do you think? Well, aside from grants, what we've called for is low interest or no interest loans. These businesses need working capital to ensure that they can pay their monthly expenses, the fixed costs that they have, utilities, uh, such as and rent and, and even some onboarding costs and bringing staff back. There are many things that these companies are faced with on a monthly basis without the revenues, without the customers, the international borders being closed. They do not have the means to address those needs and they're going further into debt. So uh, these companies don't want to incur more debt, but at the same time, may need to look at low interest or no interest loans to keep their companies afloat. So that would be one. So well, what areas of the province are doing okay? Because we were all encouraged to vacation in you know BC over the last six months. I know I certainly did, went up to the northern part of the province. Are there areas where that has been successful? Certainly in July and August, there were pockets of the province that did fairly well. The Kootenays typically welcome 65% of Albertans as part of their uh, customer makeup. So they did pretty well because Albertans were still traveling to the Kootenays. People did venture further afield, but by and large, British Columbians travel to a couple of places every year, the Okanagan being among them, the island, Tofino, Parksville, Qualicum, Courtney Comox, Those places did fairly well in the months of July and August, and some of that has carried over into September, and even places like Tofino are booked well into October and the winter months. But those are just pockets. The other thing that we look at is some of the sectors that performed well, like boating, for example, or golf. But all of that masks in fact, what happened between March and June and what's likely to happen now between October and through the winter months when you've got large sectors that uh, fuel the visitor economy, such as meetings and conventions virtually shut down, Mm -hmm. uh, plus travel waning now as as kids are back in school and people are back to working, etc., much of the province will still be in a real deficit position as far as travel is concerned. So you feel like this is crunch time that is still coming ahead of us? Yes, and many operators feel that way, that we haven't seen the worst uh, yet uh, since the start of the year. So there is great concern in the industry about survival until next spring. And there's obviously hope that the borders will be open and we'll begin to see travel again. And people have confidence in wanting to visit other countries and we can more ambitiously and aggressively market to internationals to help fuel uh, tourism and hospitality in the province. But at the same time, the longer the borders remain closed uh, and uh, as we approach the winter season, people are worried. There are businesses that are wondering whether they can hang on 
another couple of weeks, let alone a month right. or three months or four months. Is there something that we can do, Walt? I, I know you're hoping for more from the government as well, but what are the things that other British Columbians can do to help? Well, you alluded to it before about traveling to the north, and I think that is helpful as well, is, is uh, people being able to travel around the province as best they can over the winter months, go to the ski resorts, do the things that you would normally do on vacation. That is obviously going to help somewhat. But importantly, too, frequent tourism businesses, you know, whether it's Canyon Lights at the Capilano Suspension Bridge at Christmas time, or whether it's even staying in your hometown in Vancouver in particular, uh, the city has struggled throughout the summer months. There were far fewer people coming to a major center like Vancouver or to some degree Victoria than there were people traveling to other parts of the province. So if you can't because of limitations on on um, on the roads, uh, the winter conditions, and so on. Try and find things to do in your own city. Frequent some of the attractions that are open. Stay in a hotel, go to restaurants, do some of the things that visitors do when they're normally here. That would be helpful, to be sure. All right. Well, thanks so much for the advice this morning. Good luck, Walt. Thanks very much, Simi. As I'm sure you've heard by now, over the weekend, we heard about the death of the renowned U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She died Friday evening at the age of 87. She spent more than 25 years in the role of Supreme Court Justice, and she was only the second woman to be appointed to that position when she was sworn in during the Clinton administration. Now, you know there's an election coming up. Heck, how could we not know there's an election coming up? So how does this set up? Uh, what is going to happen in the election. Now the weeks leading up to it becoming even more controversial. Joining us now is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Morning. This is almost like the opposite of what exactly Ruth Bader Ginsburg wanted to have happen. She even said that. Yeah, this is exactly uh, the opposite of that. And this morning, you have the president on Fox News uh, undercutting what those last words were dictated to her granddaughter by telling uh, Fox News and his conservative base that these words are made up, possibly written by Nancy Pelosi or by Chuck Schumer, further politicizing the death uh, of, uh, of of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and further kind of creating this division over what to do about a vacant seat this close to an election. Right. And to be clear, it was her granddaughter who said that, right? It was her granddaughter that said that. It was uh, within the last couple of days of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life making these comments, saying that she just wished that the vacancy would stay empty until the people had spoken on November 3rd, and then whatever happens after that, allow for the nomination process to go forward. Republicans, though, latching onto this opening, saying that they are going to rush it through as soon as they can. Now, let's talk about this in comparison to what happened in 2016, when there was also an opening the same year of an election. Of course, Barack Obama was president. Merrick Garland was the nominee. It never happened. How is it that the Republicans can get away with saying the exact opposite four years later? Because this is a Republican Party under President Trump. This is no longer a Republican Party uh, with the attachments and links to the conservative morals of previous presidents. Uh, in 2016, Lindsey Graham was on the record on camera saying, you can use my words against me, but if this was a Republican president, we still would not be pushing through any kind of opening. Four years later, the words simply mean nothing, and they are just being used against uh, uh, the senators now to show that there is a growing sense of hypocrisy inside the Republican Party uh, and that they simply are working 
looking to better the goals here of President Trump, regardless of what it may do to the country. And going back to Merrick Garland, I mean, this is a 47 or 46 or 45 day point to the election. Merrick Garland was open for 400 days between 2016 and 2017 before that nomination died with a new government. So there is just an incredible sense of anger here amongst Democrats. So is there any way for them to slow this down? Well, I mean, look, Democrats don't have a majority in the Senate, so they're really limited at how long they can kind of filibuster this. And they may be able to hold off a vote on something like a week, maybe a little bit longer. There are some other things in play. There's a special election uh, linked to the general election in Arizona. If Captain Mark Kelly wins, it would be a pickup for the Democrats that would drop the, the Senate by one if the vote can be delayed. The most extreme measure here was brought up over the weekend with House Speaker Pelosi. She could potentially restart an impeachment process into the president or into the attorney general, and that would stop and halt any activity in the Senate. It would be an extreme measure, but at this point, Democrats are really running out of options. No kidding. That sounds crazy. When is that special election? So the special election is a part of the general election. It's the seat to uh, replace Martha McSally uh, in the Senate in Arizona. Captain Mark Kelly is leading in all polls right now. Uh, and because of the rules in Arizona, since it's a special election, if he wins that seat, it doesn't wait until the Congress changes over in January. It changes over on November 30th. So Republicans would automatically lose one seat by the end of the month. If the vote can be held off that long, they're already down two Republicans right now with Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. If they lose two more, this would die on the Senate floor. If it's a 50-50 tie, Mike Pence would get to break that vote. Okay, so they really are just one or two senators away from being able to defeat that. But have we have all the senators spoken up on this yet? No, we're still waiting to hear from a couple, uh, namely Mitt Romney, who obviously uh, is is not in the good books with the president. He voted for impeachment on one of the counts against impeachment on the second count. He hasn't said whether or not he would stick with kind of conservative values when it comes to this, if it makes its way to the floor. Uh, there are a potential few other Republicans that may want to back down from this, but Lindsey Graham's that he's going to go forward. Lamar Alexander, who's retiring this year, says, I'm going to vote for it no matter what. It's not going to hurt me at all. The, the, Democrats are really just looking for, for, for two Republicans, but it is so divided right now. It's unclear whether they're going to have kind of the friends to say, let's hold off on this because we should let America speak. And isn't Lindsey Graham also up for re-election? He is up for re-election in what would have been an incredibly safe seat for him. But his his opponent right now on the Democratic side, they are in a statistical tie in South Carolina. And some of the most uh, kind of uh, uh, moving polls and, and kind of aggregates that we look at have taken this race from likely Republican to just on the cusp of lean Republican. That is huge for uh, Republicans. If Lindsey Graham happens to lose that seat and this vote doesn't happen until after the election, there could be a huge shakeup in the Senate map. Uh, and even if a vote is, you know, makes its way through. If the Democrats take back that Senate, if they take over the White House, there is a real possibility that they simply increase the number of justices on the federal bench to Ooh. 11, once again, giving the liberals the majority. That's crazy. It's just oh, every single time something happens, it just seems like it couldn't get any crazier. And it does. Reggie, thank you for your time. Thank you. You know, one of the big issues surrounding having kids back in school is knowing when or if there is a positive COVID-19 test at that school. Districts are all handling it quite differently, which means, you know, some districts, which are doing very well, are being very good about reporting it. So it seems like there's more cases there. Others, you don't hear anything at all. I use the example of Surrey being great with the amount of information they're reporting. Vancouver, not so much. Three more Surrey schools have now been added to the possible exposures list. So we wanted to check in with Surrey School Superintendent Jordan Tinney, who joins us now with more. Thank you for being here. Uh, no worries. Happy to be here. Good morning. 
Now, I understand Surrey has been so great about releasing this information. What was your philosophy on doing that? Well, I, first, I want to say, I mean, thank you, but our, our partner is Fraser Health, right? And they are extremely supportive of, of the transparency. And, and the, we just believe that the public has a right to know. Like, uh, we're, a, we're a close community. We, we care for each other like other communities do. But we, we went out right on the gate saying whenever there's a case, we want the public to know. It isn't something we should be afraid of. It should be something we should be transparent about. And tell me about these latest cases then. Um, much the same. Um, we have 15 schools now, so, you know, we have a case. Uh, Fraser Health confirms that case, uh, and we share information with them. They do their contact tracing, and then there really are just a couple types of letters that, that come. There's an early exposure letter, meaning there has been uh, a case that is attached to a school. And then if any individuals are, are of any risk or, or cause for concern, they get an, uh, a letter asking them to monitor for symptoms, which means they may have been closer than others. And for the rest of the school, it really is, um, you know, back to business. Uh, these are big shops. And, and, you know, if anyone had reason for concern, they would be contacted directly by health. That's the thing. Like if you were needed to self-isolate, you would know. If you needed to monitor for symptoms, you would know. Otherwise, then you're really not impacted. Is that protocol working? Or are you getting lots of questions and concerns from parents? No, I think, um, I mean, everybody's concerned, but I think people, at least people understand the protocol uh, so that they know, um, you know, if, if again, they're, they're of an issue, then they're going to be contacted. I think the other thing we're learning is, as I listen to Fraser Health go through these, their, their process of contact tracing, like, it is pretty impressive, I have to say, and we're starting to see the things like now I can say I really understand why it's important to, um, you know, wash your hands, why it's important to consistently try to whatever extent you can physically distance, why it's important to wear a mask, because we watch these cases happen and, and Fraser Health will say, nope, the school had these protocols in place, uh, the kids were distanced, they weren't interacting, they were within their learning group, we're good. Um, whereas other times, sorry to go on, but, you know, I think where we let our guard down is sometimes around lunchtime and recesses and playtime um, where staff might eat together or uh, be together closer or students may be playing on the playground. That's where we need to remain vigilant. Okay, so you've clearly noticed that there are some challenges. Oh, yeah, for sure. I would be a fool to say this isn't a challenge. Uh, as time goes on, will that be another challenge as well? Just making sure, you know, that people don't let their guard down because they're tired of doing this and, you know, kids, they lose their attention on this. Like, how how would you rate the response so far? Um, I think I'd rate the response very good. I mean, for for me as a superintendent and, you know, for our district, I, I feel like health cares. I feel they're on it. I mean, they were on the phone with us last night at 830. They... You know, they're in direct communication, they're open. Uh, I just feel like I'm part of, of this problem-solving endeavor. I don't feel like it's something done to me. So moving forward, do you feel that they're all self-contained too? Like you've got the occasional case in one school here. Has, has, have there been any large numbers that have had to be isolated as a result? No, not, not yet. I mean, we can, and, and again, it's early days. We've only really been instruction in full instruction for a week. So, um, so far, uh, good news as far as no transmission, but we know that the fall is coming, the weather will get colder, people will be indoors more often, and, and so we'll remain vigilant. Jordan, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. 
All right. You take care. Thanks very much. You too. That's Jordan Tenney, the Surrey School District Superintendent. We highlight Surrey because it may seem to you like all these cases of COVID-19 in the school system seem to be coming from Surrey. Uh, Well, yes and no, they're just very good, and Fraser Health is very good about reporting that publicly. Vancouver Coastal Health has a different take on that. They say that they notify all people exposed in the most direct manner possible, and they believe that's more effective than public notifications, and they think it goes further to respect patient confidentiality. Now, they don't issue a public notification, though, which is what Fraser Health is doing. They say they only do that if there's a school exposure and they need to get the message out to the public, meaning there's more than two cases connected to it, so they're going to tell everybody about it. Obviously, that for if I was a parent, that I, mean, I am a parent, but if my kids were still in the school system, I think I would much prefer what Fraser Health is doing versus what Vancouver Coastal Health is doing. We are comparing and contrasting the way different health regions deal with exposures to COVID-19 in our schools, in particular, Fraser Health versus Vancouver Coastal Health. I'm guessing the health minister is going to be asked about this today at the afternoon press conference. But right now, let's talk to Renee Willock, who's the president of the West Vancouver Teachers Association. Good morning, Renee. Good morning, Simi. Now, how are things handled in the West Vancouver District? Well, we just had our very first case of COVID in a high school, and the principal did a great job of getting communication out to the school staff and families right away, but there has been no communication from the superintendent to the school district as a whole. Mm, So I know that's different from a district like Surrey, where Jordan Tinney has been communicating with everybody, giving specifics such as the date that the person was at the school when the exposure could have happened. We're not getting that information, and I understand the need to balance privacy, but with the right to know. And in a small community like ours, um, if people don't feel like they're they're getting the information or they're not getting accurate information, there's a real problem with confusion and rumors and just a loss of trust. So you would like them to model more of what Fraser Health does? Absolutely. And as of this morning, if I go on Vancouver Coastal Health's website, it says that there are no school exposures in the Vancouver Coastal Health region. And we just know that that's not accurate. So we're not hearing about them. They're there, but we're not hearing about them. Mm -mm. And I would say it's reasonable to expect the reporting of cases in schools to be the same as it is in the rest of society. I guess what I don't understand about Vancouver Coastal Health's approach is that they're assuming that they're telling all the people who need to know, but are they? You don't know? Like, you may know somebody who goes to that school and you weren't, like, it, it just seems to me it would be much safer to have everybody know. Yes, I'm getting my inbox is filling up with these kinds of questions. You know, you have a elementary school that shares a fence with the secondary school, but the elementary school wasn't told, even though siblings attend the two different schools. You're right. That would be very questionable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then is this, do you think other schools are concerned about this as well? Have you heard this from teachers? Oh yeah. My, my inbox and my phone have been blowing up over the weekend. People are trying really hard to be calm and they're trying to be responsible and do the right thing. But at the same time, when there is a, a vacuum of information, um, You get misinformation, and you get worries and people not knowing what they should do. So what would be your message then to Vancouver Coastal Health, Renee? Well, 
we would like to have the information. We would like to have it at fingertips. If I go on their website, we should be able to see if there, if there are cases and exposures. And just communicating quickly with people because there seems to be a real lag time in the contact tracing that, you know, days can go by before people find out if, um, if they were a close contact. So that has been a real stressor for my teachers. I think you make some excellent points. Renee, thanks for your time on this. You're welcome, Simi. That's Renee Willock, who's the president of the West Vancouver Teachers Association, raising concerns about the way, you know, districts in the Vancouver Coastal Health region are dealing with COVID-19 cases versus Fraser Health. You're hearing about all these cases in schools and you must think, oh, wow, look at Surrey has a real problem. Oh, well, there's no problem in Vancouver Coastal Health. That's not true. There are cases, the public's just not being told about them, which really kind of goes against what we thought was going to happen when the health minister, Adrian Dick, said, oh, yes, they would have a page and they would make that so that everybody could see, you know, uh, the exposures and what's happening. Vancouver Coastal Health is citing patient confidentiality and saying they're just telling the people who need to know. I think the general public probably needs to know this as well. Uh, Renee made some excellent points. Siblings in two different high schools. If you're not telling all the parents in the other high school, um, what about that situation as well? So what do you think? Should, should Vancouver Coastal Health change their policy? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And once again, I'm fairly certain that Health Minister Adrian Dix will be asked about this coming up this afternoon. We'll also put in some requests to talk to Vancouver Coastal Health about it as well. But go ahead and weigh in with your thoughts. We know that search and rescue teams, you know, used to be busy mainly in the winter, but now they are busy all year round. But if you've ever wondered just how challenging and amazing that job really is, a new documentary series is coming soon that is going to be going behind the scenes to really get you that good look. So joining us now is Grant Baldwin, a director and cinematographer who is part of the team behind the series. It's called Search and Rescue North Shore. Grant, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. So how did this series come about? Well, my previous documentary, This Mountain Life, featured multiple characters, and we wanted to feature a search and rescue member on North Shore. And as soon as we started doing research, we realized it's a much bigger story to tell. There's 40 members on the team. They all are unique, and a series was really the only way to do it. That must have been incredibly challenging, filming this. It was uh, pretty miserable, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we we had to respond as quick as the team. If If we could be quicker, it was better. We could get the call as it was coming in, as the team arrived, and then figure out how we're going to cover the, the rescue. Because just like the members, they don't really know where they're going to be going until the last minute. And uh, that can also change uh, mid-course. And that would be challenging for you, too, trying to film this, because you would like to see them arriving, right? You'd like to see them getting ready. It's hard to do that if you're trying to catch up. Yeah, we didn't have the opportunity to pre-rig anything because they're volunteers, um, you didn't know who was coming to the calls. There was no pre-miking ever or anyone. The helicopter would arrive probably from some other job, and you'd have to rig that up with cameras. So it was pretty stressful, but we became sort of a well-oiled machine. But the first couple months were pretty rough. How long did this take? We embedded with the team for one year. So myself and Ian Christie, the other cinematographer, we um, basically responded to every call for a year and it was just over 150 calls. Wow. So Grant, did you have some preconceived notions about what it would be like? And then how, how do you compare those to what it was actually like? You know, um, I, I knew that some calls may not have happy endings and I tried to brace for that, but it was pretty emotionally draining um, to go through that. And then I, 
it made me realize that the team, they, they volunteer their time, but they're also, there's this emotional investment um, that they give because they have to tell families that maybe they would, didn't find someone or they have to tell someone that, you know, their son's deceased. And that was really tough. And we knew that we needed to cover it because we wanted to show what the team is really giving. And so we did tastefully um, did cover calls like that too. Uh, one of the frustrations I think a lot of people have when we cover the stories about search and rescue is that you really feel for them because sometimes they go out and they're dealing with people who were not prepared to go out in those conditions. Did you observe a lot of that? Yeah, many many people go out unprepared, um, make poor decisions, or don't really know how to deal with the situation once they're in it. Um, and I think that's a big part of the show is the education. That's what I think the team why they wanted to do it. They wanted the public to understand, yes, what they do, but mm-hmm. also how these people get into the situation. And, you know, people can get injured at any time, and there's a lot of super skilled backcountry people that get injured, and that's part of it too. But, yes, unprepared people, they're on the show for sure. What, w- like, what would you describe as the typical kind of personality of somebody who makes up a search and rescue member? I think they have to love... Um, physical pain in terms of <laughs> strenuous <laughs> activity. Uh, North Shore, it, it may look like this lump of trees, but it's actually extremely steep. If you removed all the trees in the North Shore, it would look just as gnarly as the Rockies. Um, but, you know, they're carrying stuff for themselves for overnight, stuff for if they get to the subject to make them comfortable for overnight, and then possibly rope equipment as well. Their, pa- their backpacks were heavier than ours as cinematographers. And so you have a lot of, we came away from with, with a lot of respect for them. I have, I've had a huge respect for the team and um, I was, at, we were actually inspired. So Ian and I joined the team as resource members by the end of production. And so we assist now if they need help with drone searches. Wow. Okay. Impressive. So then Grant, where can people see this and when? Yeah, it premieres November 10th, episode one. It's a five-part series. So episode one is November 10th on the Knowledge Network. So would you say this is one of the more challenging projects that you've undertaken? Uh, it's, it was most emotionally challenging. Um, physically, I've done some things before that, that, that equaled it, but um, just, you know, uh, d- dealing with, with, with some of the uh, more emotional calls, that was, that, was, that was hard for sure. How do the members do it? I mean, they're doing it, you know, as you said, 150 times a year. I think, I think some, everyone's processes the, the difficult ones their own way. There is help for these things now. There is ways you can you can reach out for help if, if you're having trouble with that. And that's sort of new. And some of these people have been on the team and are still active for 30 years. And I'm sure it's affecting them. I know team leader Mike Danks does speak about this a little bit. Some of the things he's had to experience, especially with young people, that, that can be the, the hardest. Um, but, yeah, it seems like everyone is sort of dealing with it their own way. But it's good to know there are resources now for them to reach out. It certainly is. Uh, so what would you recommend? After you've seen them doing their work, how can we make their work easier? I think I think it's important just to, to realize what they are doing in terms of the calls. It's not always just hikers. They actually help on urban searches if an elderly person goes missing. A lot of Alzheimer's um, uh, patients can walk off and they will do urban searches as well. I just want everyone to see what what they actually contribute to our community uh, how many hours they're contributing to community, the emotional investment, and then um, and make sure that you're supporting your, your local SAR team. All right, Grant, thanks so much for your time. Okay, thanks for having me on. 
That is Grant Baldwin. He's a director and cinematographer behind Search and Rescue North Shore. It is a five-part documentary series that followed North Shore Search and Rescue team members for a year. Uh, So you can get a really up-close-and-personal look at the unbelievable amount of tough work that that team does. Starts November 10th on the Knowledge Network. Make sure you check that out.